A family is a dictatorship ruled over by its sickest member. An essay by Matt Ruby. That's me. A family is a dictatorship ruled over by its sickest member. I think about that line all the time. The first time I encountered it was in Act One, the autobiography by playwright Moss Hart. Here's what he wrote. I cannot remember who it was who said that a family was a dictatorship ruled over by its sickest member. He certainly could not have known my grandfather, but it was some such symbol he must have had in mind when he made the remark. By the way, Act One, great book. Highly recommend it. So who's the most dysfunctional person in your family? The bully, the addict, the hypochondriac, the control freak, the one with PTSD or some other illness? Or maybe you have your own unique flavor of sick in the mix. After all, as Tolstoy said, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Now, consider how much of your family's internal politics and day-to-day decisions revolve around that person. In effect, they rule the roost. Or perhaps you're covering up for that person and pretending their sickness or whatever it is can be ignored. It's not that bad, you tell yourself, because, well, that's how you get through it. But ignoring it usually just means the toxicity bubbles up in other ways. You can put your finger in the dike, but the water's still going to go somewhere. Originally, the dictatorship line seemed to me a statement on individual dysfunction. It's about something that's wrong with some person, but as time has passed, I've come to see it as a reveal of what it actually means to be a family. The phrase isn't about the sick person. It's about how everyone else rallies around them and finds a way to make it work, or at least get by. It's an acknowledgement of the relationship between family and friction. And in that relationship, the obstacles are, in many ways, the whole point. Within my family, it wasn't tough to figure out our dictator. During my youth, my mother was diagnosed with a chronic disease and eventually lost her ability to walk. So she became the de facto chief of our clan. When it was clear she would eventually wind up bedridden, she decided she wanted to live somewhere with a view. So my father and I flew across the country to the north coast of California and searched for a house with a scenic vista. Eventually, we found this ramshackle home overlooking the ocean in Humboldt County. It was falling apart, but it had what our leader craved, a room with a view. There, from her bed, she was able to spend her final years watching Pacific waves crash while listening to the yelps of sea lions. We sold the sedan we had and bought a van that could transport her wheelchair to restaurants, coastal overlooks, and medical appointments. When she told me that if she lived for two more years, she wanted me to help her take her own life, I meekly agreed. Fine, I'll figure out how to kill you. You're the boss. She died of a stroke a year later. Obviously, I was sad, but also relieved I wouldn't have to find some Kevorkian type to help me pull off that plot. The military has a tough mission, to turn strangers into brothers. One way it does this is by building a culture where no one gets left behind. A basic pillar of the military I will never leave a fallen comrade. It's known as the warrior ethos. We often think soldiers are fighting for patriotic reasons, you know, love of country, defend the homeland and all that. But the truth is they fight for each other. According to Major Robert J. Riley, the bond formed among members of a squad or platoon is the single most important sustaining and motivating force for combat soldiers. Simply put, he writes, soldiers fight because of the other members of their small unit. 
Soldiers retrieve anyone wounded or trapped behind enemy lines, even if it means risking their own lives. Their refusal to leave a fallen comrade, that's what makes them a unit. A family is a dictatorship ruled over by its sickest member. And in the military's case, an injured soldier becomes his comrade's general. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. The Statue of Liberty offers up that promise, you know, one that America will shelter the weak and aid the helpless. And Nancy Pelosi once called this a statement of values of our country. It's the reason our states are united, because, well, we rally around those who need it most. I mean, at least in theory. These days, it's tough to follow that thread. After all, there are plenty of examples of America failing to live up to those values. In fact, it all feels more like a myth than any sort of reality. But myths have a purpose. They give us something to aspire toward. That new Colossus sonnet is America's own don't-be-evil mission statement. It's the sign on the wall we can all point to and say, this is what we stand for. It may be nonsense, but it still carries weight. Even if it's not who we are, it shows us what we want to be. And of course, we frequently fail to pull it off. I mean, caring for the sick is hard, and no family is perfect. We moan about, yell at, and try to cajole our dysfunctional members, especially if it seems as if they're, on some level, choosing their ill behavior. But since we can't excommunicate them, we eventually offer them asylum. After all, they're family. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. When we allow the sick member to take the reins, it forces us to stop prioritizing ourselves. In a society that's often dominated by competition, this is one place cooperation finally triumphs. It takes us out of the I, me, mine rat race and makes us navigate the maze together as a unit. So it's no wonder family members often depict these sorts of challenges as a blessing. Maybe they're just putting on a brave face, but it's worth noting how often acts of kindness and strong family bonds are mentioned as essential ingredients to leading a happy life. And research shows people who have strong family ties live the longest. A family is a dictatorship ruled over by its sickest member. On the surface, it sounds like a pretty bum deal. Yet somehow it's a path to happiness, longevity, and ego loss. And sometimes the sick can be our greatest teachers. I think often about the grace with which my mother handled her disease. She never complained, never asked why me. She just kept fighting until she couldn't move any longer. And then she immersed herself in Eastern philosophy, explaining my journey is now an inward one. Her body couldn't move, yet her mind soldiered on. It felt like a lesson. Leadership consultant Susan Bernstein once wrote about the Buddhist approach to misfortune. I'll quote her. The Buddhists say that any time we suffer misfortune, two arrows fly our way. The first arrow is the actual bad event, which can, indeed, cause pain. The second arrow is the suffering. That's actually optional. The second arrow represents our reaction to the bad event. It's the manner in which we choose to respond emotionally. The way my mother moved through her illness seemed like something she was trying to teach us. Don't shoot the second arrow. Life throws awfulness at you. There's nothing you can do about that. But you control your reaction to these negative events. Don't shoot the second arrow. In retrospect, that was the final mandate of our benevolent dictator.
And now let's welcome in super producer Jeremiah McVeigh. Hello, Jeremiah. I don't know about all that, but thank you. I couldn't help but think of, during this essay, um, my own experience as a father. I feel like a lot of what you're describing also applies to kids. You know, once you have a kid, they're sort of the benevolent. Well, I don't know how often it's benevolent. Sometimes (laughs) it is. (laughs) They're they're like the little dictator of the family. My wife and I often call our daughter the dictator of our family, (laughs) uh, for better or worse. So there was a lot I I could relate to. Uh, you know, I mean, not one to one, but still, yeah, I, I think it is something that that can sort of be applied to a wide range of like familial structures or relationships and things like that. So I, I don't know. I guess I'm curious then, with that in mind, outside of the the main relationship you discuss in this with your mother, like are there other places in your life where you've seen this at play? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to spill anyone else's tea but like i think in families where someone's wrestling with addiction uh i think they can often sort of wind up controlling the family dynamic on some level because everyone around them is sort of forced to figure out how to deal with this do you confront it what do you allow do you cut them off do you try to have an intervention do you just it enable you know what what's I think it's one of the toughest challenges, you know, for for family members sometimes to try to figure out, you know, how do you respond when someone you love is sort of caught up in something that um, they don't even seem able to control. And I don't think that there's necessarily a good answer, but I do. I go back to on some level, it almost feeling like the definition of family of if this person wasn't family you probably, and you were just sort of taking a cold calculation of, of you know, your own selfishness versus someone else. You would just be like, it's not worth it. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. cutting them out. I'm just not going to deal with this. But the fact that, you know, this is a family member is like, well, that's not an option. Okay. So how do I manage this? How, how can I help? What's the best thing I can do um, in order to, you know, you know, survive and have this other person survive and hopefully flourish? Um, and so, yeah, I think to me, that's sort of, you know, where I come back to on a lot of this, it's sort of like, oh, if you weren't family, you would never put up with this, but because Mm -hmm. you are, you do. And in a way that then becomes the definition of family. Right. I think another thing that separates those two examples, the, the small child or any child really, and then someone suffering from addiction, um, is that that ability to not shoot the second arrow is hindered, if not completely taken away, maybe. You know, like they don't have the capacity to control their reaction to something, maybe, because they are undeveloped as a small child or they're not aware of the full extent of what's happening to them because of their addiction. So, you know, um, so I, I guess. Those don't necessarily qualify as benevolent dictatorships, I guess. Yeah, I think if we're going to be Buddhist, let's take value judgment out of it. You know, benevolent sure, or, sure. or malignant would be, uh, you know, us trying to put it in some good bad column. To stay on the Buddhist track, you know, I think children are very Buddhist. This idea of beginner's mind, it's like they're not thinking about what they're doing. And in a way, what you're, uh, you know, this is my interpretation, you know, that is something to aspire to, to take out that, you know, sort of uh, analysis and uh, obsessing over, you know, what happened in the past or attaching yourself to how things are supposed to be and just, you know, living in the present. And children are really 
amazing at that. And on some level, that may, even if it's painful for you in, in the moment, in real time, that may be part of the lesson that that dictator, in, in your example, is trying to teach you, uh, or not even trying, but just is teaching you of, you know, like, okay, well, you know, they were, they were crying and miserable five seconds ago, but now everything seems to be fine. So I guess we left that realm. We're just living in the present moment now, as opposed to like fixating on how, you know, things are supposed to be, or, you know, getting right. envious of others or anything like that. And now for some quickies. We are living in the golden age of provocateurs who are outraged that anyone is provoked. It's weird that OCD is a disorder that makes you want everything to be in order. My big problem with crypto people how much they love terrible art and design. Please stop making me look at cartoon apes. God. You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rubes Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff, too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. 